All right, so if we have time this evening, we still will make our way into the book of Ezekiel. Um, because again, that, uh, the little section in Ezekiel where we are is going to dovetail with what a lot we're going to talk about this evening. Um, but our little segment here, the weekend woke, just continues to kind of expand and grow. I'm starting to get suggestions from some of you as far as what should be in the weekend woke. I, I appreciate that. And um, I had seen this one and I received this suggestion, so I want to make sure we get a chance to talk about it. So this hit the news just a few days ago. Um, Harvard, the Harvard chaplains voted amongst themselves who was going to be the head of chaplains at Harvard. And they chose this guy, Greg Epstein, who is an avowed atheist as the head of chaplains at Harvard University. Now that's ironic on a lot of different levels. Um, Harvard University, it was in the 1630s, 1632, 1636, I can't remember exactly when. It actually got started by a minister by the name of John Harvard um, in order to train pastors for the ministry. Um, according to the article in the New York Times, it was 70 years before a president of Harvard University was not also a pastor. So that's how Harvard University gets started. And then now we're at this point. So Greg Epstein actually made the news a while ago with a book that he wrote called Good Without God. So he's got this perspective and his argument inside of that book was, we can all find this way to be good, decent, civilized human beings and none of us have to appeal to any kind of deity or God. Um, those kinds of books all have their own sort of flavor, but there are dozens and dozens of dozens of those kinds of texts out there. Inside of the uh, New York Times article, you know, he's interviewed, they're asking him questions. All the other, uh, you know, chaplains just think he's a great guy. I'm sure he's a great guy. Um, but I found this quote particularly provocative. That in this uh, woke world, where this woke culture that we're living in now, and we've touched on this from time to time, it is hardcore pluralistic as far as religion is concerned. It's not hardcore atheist, it's hardcore pluralistic. Anything but Christianity, and we'll also touch on a little bit tonight, anything but Judaism, um, it's not anything but Islam, and we'll discuss that here in just a couple of minutes. But he says this, I find this absolutely fascinating. We don't look to a God for answers, Mr. Epstein said. We are each other's answers. <clears throat> that, that's, a, that's a common thought amongst people who think like this and write like this. This is their point of view. But that kind of point of view is only possible inside of a tiny little bubble of people. See, people are incredulous already. Hey, it was your husband who brought this, who made sure that I, my suggestion, yeah. <laughs> that thought is only possible when you have a very small group of people who generally hold to the same values and ideas anyway. You take that thought outside of that bubble, you take it outside of his bubble, and it is not going to work. Okay, you may still be able to have plenty of dialogue and conversation, but uh, who counts as the other people who are our answers to life's most significant and important questions? Um, because people have very different answers to that, right? But this concept that we 
meaning the group of people who are involved at places like Harvard, can help provide answers for all of the rest of us, a very common point of view inside of this kind of world view. I ran across uh, a couple of other things. One of them I wrote on a little bit this week. Uh, We've talked about the phrase white supremacy several different times, kind of what it means and what it stands for. But part of what's happening with that phrase is that it's being used as a label for absolutely everything. So for some people, white supremacy is absolutely everywhere. So this article in the LA Times is behind a paywall. It's been updated. I couldn't get to it to read it. But that, uh, that, uh, uh, that article title made the rounds um, a few days ago. So a lot of people did the whole screen capture thing and so forth. And I, and I love, I love the, uh, the finger wagging. You've been warned. So it's, it's uh, who knows what kind of Armageddon catastrophe is going to happen if that white supremacist, you know, becomes governor of the state of California. But we've talked about this, right? We've seen this in other contexts. A phrase like that doesn't belong to a skin color, it belongs to an ideology. So this young lady who wrote this article can say something like that, and for her, it's, it's a genuine concern. She's not joking. Uh, she really thinks that this is a big deal. So the LA Times, one of the nation's top five newspapers, uh, this is one of their primary headlines leading up to the recall election and so forth. So I wonder who they're, you know, not for <laughs> in California. And then this other one was actually published in the Scientific American. So it's on their website. It's, it's inside of their opinion page. Um, but it was published by the Scientific American, which is a pretty serious organization. And they write this, I love this, denial of evolution is a form of white supremacy. So at a certain point, that phrase gets used for so many things, it doesn't mean anything. You see, even just from a kind of rational, reflective point of view, if you're going to use that phrase and use it productively in a conversation, in a worldview, in an ideology, Part of, what you, part of what is incumbent upon you is to create boundaries and limits, to say this is how we define this, and it belongs in this category, and if certain things meet these standards, then we're going to call it this. We're going to call it white supremacy. But we're getting to this point, we've probably gotten to the point where we've jumped the shark, so to speak, where if somebody just doesn't like an idea, they just slap an emotional label on it, write a short article, which, by the way, provided no evidence and just really made not a lot of sense. And it's still up. You can read it. It's short. It's easy to read. And then the thought is we're going we're to drive this emotional train with this phrase as opposed to actually producing ideas or argumentation. But that phrase just over and over and over and over and over again. All right. This next one here is going to send me into a conversation that I've been wanting to find a way to get into. So I have, I have shoehorned us into a situation this morning, and you're going to have to listen to a couple of things. So the Taliban can tweet, right? So this has been a big deal, um, given events in Afghanistan over the, these last few days. 
um, that Twitter has not removed the primary spokespersons for the Taliban from their platform, but they've removed several other notable individuals from their platform who aren't uh, shooting service dogs on the tarmac or uh, pulling women into sex slavery or hanging people off of airplanes over the city of Kabul, right? So why one group and not the other? So out of this particular article, um, a, a couple of things uh, to read, and then we'll get into it. But the, the, the question I want to ask with something like this, can, and here's, here's how I want to set it up. You've got an organization like Twitter and Jack Dorsey and social media in general. You've got a group of people who are just avowedly and openly woke. I mean, that's, that's not a slur. That's just something that they own. That's just something that they are. For social justice, for feminism, working on behalf of the weak and the downtrodden, so they pull people like Donald Trump and others off of their platform for life, but they leave the Taliban on their platform. Why is there, and there is, why is there a bizarre connection between the woke world and Islam? Why does there not seem to be a lot of criticism from one to the other? And if you pay attention to this, you'll see that exact kind of problem between these two worlds. So, um, a little bit from the, um, from the article here. I just, I just love this kind of stuff because, again, you just kind of keep shaking your head. And this is part of what the uh, article had to say. In a statement obtained by Mediaite Tuesday... Twitter ducked the question of whether it would bar representatives of the Islamic fundamentalist government from getting their message out 280 characters at a time, saying only that it would, quote, continue to proactively enforce its rules outlawing the, quote, glorification of violence, platform manipulation, and spam. So Twitter's going to keep a close eye on those Taliban types in case they glorify violence or abuse their use of their social media platform, or start selling you stuff um, in spam emails on Twitter. Then you're in trouble. <laughs> you know, the reporters at the Babylon Bee broke that story. <laughs> but get this. So this is part of their official statement. Twitter's top priority is keeping people safe and we remain vigilant. All right, so again, we've been doing this for a little while now. So hopefully we're kind of in tune a little bit with this completely otherworldly worldview of wokeism. What do they mean by safe? They use that word seriously. What do they mean by safe? What they mean is safe from certain speech safe from certain ideologies, hate or safe from what they would call hate speech or misinformation. So Twitter can say that with a completely straight face and believe that they're actually doing that and say, well, we're trying to actually keep people safe. So we've got a worldview again that just keeps changing the definitions of words. So that's another thing that we're learning. We're keeping our eyes on 
that the words that they use sound great. And we're going to run into a lot of that tonight. But the question is, what do they mean by that, right? And then we learn what they mean by that by what they do with that. So what does Twitter mean by we're trying to keep people safe? Well, we're going we're gonna to shadow ban certain ideas and speech so that you don't have to see that on our platform. But we're going to keep our eye on these Taliban-y types. We're going to see if they turn out okay. So what is this strange comfort level between the woke and Islam? A few years ago, we would have asked the question like this. Why is there this weird connection between the secular left in the West in general and actually certain parts of the hard right, the actual rise, re-rise of things like the Nazi party and so forth? Why is there a connection between these crowds of people and fundamentalist Islam, hardcore Islam? This group of people politically in the West are incapable of criticizing fundamentalist Islam or they won't take significant steps toward dealing with it or criticizing it. Why is that the case? Because these are really, really strange bedfellows. There are a lot of, as when you take a first glance at these different worldviews, you think, well, there are so many significant differences between these worldviews. Certainly, they would never get along with one another, especially when you talk about in the woke world, well, when, what do we mean by human sexuality? What kind of sexuality are we going to allow? What do we mean by family structure? What do we mean by feminism? What do we mean by social justice? And on and on and on. You take all of those things and you balance them against the way Islam sees the world and you think there are no two more natural enemies than these two worldviews. So why aren't they going after each other? Why is one so comfortable with the other? There's a wonderful columnist in the UK. Her name is Melanie Phillips, and she actually writes on this topic a lot. She keeps track of a lot of um, anti-Semitism in the West and so forth. Um, and if you're into this kind of thing, she's, she's actually pretty valuable to read from time to time. So she writes about the bizarre connection between these two worldviews. She, she has at least three answers. Why are these two groups of people so okay with each other? She said, well, we've got all these differences, but they're on the surface. If you scratch the surface and you get down to what they actually believe and what they're actually working for, they're all working for exactly the same kinds of things. And she breaks it into three categories. And the first is utopianism. So the Islamic belief of a this-worldly kind of change of all things, uh, the final imam is going to show up, there's going to be a worldwide caliphate, so that's why we do what we do, that's why we engage in violence, that way, you know, depending on the crowd, this is why they do what they do. They're after a this-worldly utopianism. Well, we've seen that consistently with this Marxist woke worldview. It is a this-worldly utopianism. And she says, you know what? They actually share this in common. And there's, there's a lot of truth to that. But it's not just that. Both of these groups of people, she argues, and she argues correctly, um, have a hatred for a Western democracy, for what we would call classical liberalism. Um, one person, one vote, free market economy, um, these kinds of things, freedom of religion. Neither one of these groups are for freedom of religion. And so they're going to be very simpatico when it comes to stuff like that. So they have this 
shared distaste for the West. And then both of these groups of people, and this is one of the dirty little secrets of the woke movement, is that both of them are profoundly anti-Semitic. Now, when you go into the woke universe, you have to hunt for this a little bit because it often gets buried deep inside of interviews, deep inside of their sort of in-house publications and websites. But you start hunting for those, uh, those individuals who founded BLM and you see what their point of view is on Israel and Palestine and what they think of Israel. And it is, it makes, it's skin-crawlingly anti-Semitic. Okay, so it's all over the place inside of the woke world, and obviously the Islamic world, sort of the kings of, of anti-Semitism right now. Uh, Dad sent me that uh, comic. I love that. U.S. anti-Semitism is rising from the grave again, and it most certainly is. And again, if you find the right folks who, who, do the, uh, who ride on these kinds of things, um, you will be able to start ticking off the number of um, anti-Semitic protests that happen in the streets of major cities in the West. Not just you know, somewhere inside of England or France or Germany, but inside of the United States as well. It is actually fairly common. And all of these crowds are either that Nazi, um, actual white supremacy kinds of groups, or the hardcore woke left, right? And it's all over the place. So we've got this, we've got these ideological connections between these groups of people that most people would not uh, just kind of see at the very surface of it. <clears throat> Going from that, I want to start talking, I, I wanna talk a little bit tonight about um, woke uh, business. Woke capitalism, it's a thing. And the reason I'm getting here is that a lot of companies have picked up this woke world, um, these woke ideologies. They've picked up even many of them, the anti-Semitism of the woke political left. And so I wanna talk about why businesses are doing some of the things that they're doing, how they're doing some of the things that they're doing, and why on earth um, this woke ideology has made its way into Walmart and Disney and Coca-Cola and on and on and on. So what we mean by woke capitalism what we mean by woke business is exemplified by some of these things that we see in the news. Coca-Cola famously in the last few months put all of their employees through diversity training, wanting everybody to become less white. Now, why would Coke do that? It's because they've bought into um, a very specific point of view. So woke economics. Um, how many of you know what the golden rule in business is? Yeah, he who has the gold makes the rules. In woke business, it's he who has the gold makes the rules and the moral rules as well. So businesses are now in the business of moral preening, of morally positioning themselves in the world, picking up social justice causes, picking up political causes that they think will, will do the best 
good for the most people. We'll keep fleshing this out, but businesses now, a lot of corporations are taking it upon themselves to engage politically and socially through this kind of broad lens of what we're calling woke business. This is the phrase. Now stick with me for a couple of minutes um, because, you know, the language... Language, again, is important. If you read the articles, if, if you just run across something, the vocabulary really makes a difference. Stakeholder capitalism. That's what we're talking about. That's what they call it. This is what the World Economic Forum calls it. This is what several other groups call it, stakeholder capitalism. It's very different than the way business is traditionally done. The way business is traditionally done is often called shareholder capitalism. Or a business is going to do its best on behalf of those who actually hold shares in that business or who own part of that business. So they're going to do business to do as good as they can for those who actually own shares inside of that business. Stakeholder business, capitalism, changes that group of people for whom we do business. Now, again, you're going to get a lot of these great big long lists of we're doing business now, um, not just for our shareholders, but for our employees and for the betterment of our community. You're going to get a lot of good sounding language. But again, the question is, what do you mean by that vocabulary and what do you do with that vocabulary? Okay, so... Stakeholder capitalism places the burden of moral and social change on businesses and nations on behalf of people. So who are stakeholders? Stakeholders in this version of capitalism, of business, stakeholders are large international businesses, large international banking systems, and nation states. And if we can put the power of those three things together, can you just imagine the amount of good we can do? Can you imagine how much of the environment we can save? Can you imagine how many people we can take care of if we just align gigantic businesses with gigantic banks and nation states? What could go wrong with that, right? Okay, now this is, this is a thing. Okay, this is the actual language and this is actually the purpose of a lot of this kind of stuff. Um, There's an organization of 181 of the largest businesses around the world. Their CEOs are part of what's called the Business Roundtable. Let me read just a little bit of what the Business Roundtable did in 2019. And I went off and I printed off the PDF and I've got all the, you know, all the signatures are there. I'm going back and forth to the printer and I'm chuckling to myself as I'm doing so. And, and Heather keeps asking me, why are you laughing? I said, because I'm printing off the documents that mean the ruin of our republic. That's why. And so, you know, it's just all out there. It's just, you know, on their website, businessroundtable.org. But let me read a little bit about what they did. On August 19th, 2019, 181 CEOs of America's largest corporations overturned a 22-year-old policy statement that defined a corporation's principal purpose as maximizing shareholder return. So they know that they're actually overturning the way that they used to do business. This is their own language. In its place, the CEOs of Business Roundtable adopted a new statement on the purpose of a corporation 
declaring that companies should serve not only their shareholders, but also deliver value to their customers, invest in employees, and deal fairly with suppliers and support communities in which they operate. And you read that and you think, man, that sounds awesome, right? So the president um, uh, and, ch and chief executive officer of Walmart who's the chairman of the business roundtable, this was his comment on this particular meeting. During a time of tremendous challenge, business roundtable CEOs have shown what it means to live the principles we announced almost a year ago. Concurrent health, economic, and racial crises have made clear how various systems are connected and that multi-stakeholder capitalism is the answer to addressing our challenges holistically. So they believe that their job as a corporation is to address all of these issues socially. So that's why these companies are doing these kinds of things. America's CEOs remain steadfast in our commitment to pursue economic prosperity and expanded opportunity for our employees, customers, and the communities we serve. You read through more of their website and more of their documents, and it is hardcore social justice stuff, okay? So a lot of the stuff that we've covered before is throughout this document. You read the word equity and equity of outcome over and over throughout this document. So a lot of stuff that we've gone through is inside of this website and inside of these documents. All right, so here's where, here's where we go crazy. So yes, even more crazy. The Vatican is all in. Okay, so the, so the Vatican has created what's called the Council for Inclusive Capitalism. So this is a relatively, relatively recent initiative, but they've gathered a bunch of CEOs, they've gathered a bunch of um, uh, leaders, heads of state, they've gathered a bunch of um, banking individuals. I almost said banking clans, I've been watching too much Star Wars. <clears throat> a bunch of different bankers. And they together boast over, I think it's, and it's on, again on their website, $2.1 trillion in assets in 163 different nations, several hundred different companies that are on board. So they're saying this, this is an international project that we have to change the way that business is done. And this council is working side by side with things like the World Economic Forum, that's, uh, you know, the Bill Gates crowd and the uh, Prince Charles crowd and so forth. But this is the Vatican's version of doing all of these kinds of things. And again, you read through their website, and it's full of that kind of equity, social justice kind of language. So the Vatican is all in on this style of business and so forth. As I'm going through this stuff, I was reminded of, of one of the wise men of American cinema, <laughs> the Scottish dad on So I Married an Axe Murderer. <laughs> I'm sorry, every time I, I think about this, this character, I laugh. Um, it's Mike Myers, he plays himself, he plays his father inside of the movie. Uh, here's, here's, why this, here's why this is interesting to me. The reason this character is a joke, one of the reasons this character is a joke is he's a conspiracy theorist. And he's a wacko conspiracy theorist. So at this point in the movie, he's explaining to this other character 
who's going to take over the world? And it's a joke, okay? It's a joke when this movie was put out. So this guy is asking him, so who exactly is in this? The, the character calls it the Pentaveret. They meet biannually at a secret location known as the Meadows in Colorado. So all right, it's all a joke. He's a conspiracy theorist. So who's taking over the world? And he lists off the five groups that are taking over the world. He said the Queen, the Vatican, the Rothschilds, the Gettys, and the Colonel before he died. Which Colonel? Colonel Sanders. <laughs> he just can't stand Colonel Sanders. It's a whole thing with this guy. <laughs> The, Va the Vatican, okay, the Vatican, the woman standing directly to the Pope's right is a member of the Rothschild family. We've already talked about, say the queen is not there, but her son, the crown prince of England, is the one who helped initiate what's known as stakeholder capitalism and is in charge of the global reset for the World Economic Forum. So we have the Queen, the Vatican, the Rothschilds. Couldn't find any connection to the Gettys. And then you've got Colonel Sanders <laughs> before he died. I did a little bit of digging. And I'm telling you people, no one else is gonna give you this kind of reporting <laughs> anywhere else. That document signed by 181 CEOs the largest companies based here inside of the U.S., and they're all international companies. One of those CEOs runs a company called um, Yum Brands. Y-U-M exclamation mark brands. Yum Brands owns several, <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I can't, I, I, they own several fast food restaurants, including KFC. The Queen, the Vatican, the Rothschilds, and the Colonel. <laughs> Where else are you going to get this kind of quality reporting? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was a joke until he wasn't. Right? Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. That was the other thing I was laughing at all day long. Heather could understand while I'm putting all this together. Why, why in the world are you laughing? So we've got all this wonderful sounding language about what all these companies are going to do for their communities and for the globe and for the environment and, and on and on and on and on. But what this is in reality is a new set of moral and political rules that will be enforced through the connection between gigantic businesses, gigantic banks, and nation states. Now, there was another time in recent history in the West when those three groups put themselves together for the betterment of their nations. And what that turned into is what we call fascism. So that's one of the technical differences between the fascism of the Nazis and the communism of the Soviets. 
is that the Nazis and the fascists put together those things, whereas the communists, their philosophy was eventually to absorb all of that and to take over all of that. It was also happening in FDR's America very early on as well. So just technically, the economics of fascism are when you put together giant businesses, giant banks, and nation states. So what it is is a new set of moral and political rules altogether where CEOs and corporations begin to weigh in on social issues and they make disagreement expensive. So they put a price on disagreement. So what happens if you disagree with your corporation's point of view on human sexuality? You're forced to go through diversity training and if you don't, your job may be at stake where you're forced to do X, Y, and Z because of the orders that come down from above. But even if you disagree, they make that disagreement expensive. By that, I mean you might actually lose your job if you disagree openly with the corporation. This is all wrapped up into um, all of this kind of stuff, into woke uh, ideology. If some of you um, check your investments, the investments that you are, you are in, um, it's called an ESG score. So an ESG score is a relatively new score inside of investments that has nothing to do with how profitable a company is or how much capital it has or how much cash it has or how much opportunity it has. ESG stands for Environment, Social, and Governance. So an ESG score has been completely concocted by the World Economic Forum and a few other gigantic banks, Goldman Sachs being one of them. Again, I sound like the Scottish dad when I do stuff like this, but again, I'm just describing it to you. We went through some of our stuff just recently and all of the companies, all of the tickers had an ESG score next to them. So the higher your ESG score, the more you're valued by certain individuals inside of the market. And a higher ESG score means that you're doing things for the environment, you've restructured, you're doing things socially, you're engaged socially, and your governance is changing. You're hiring certain kinds of people. And so this has now become part of the uh, evaluation of corporations, and it's all wrapped up inside of this woke capitalism. So for all the talk of the stakeholders they're paying attention to, it's an unholy alliance between the most powerful people, companies, and governments around the world, and all of them essentially laying out for the rest of us, this is what life needs to look like, this is what the world needs to look like as well. So this fascinating book called Woke, Inc., Vivek Ramaswamy, I mean, I just love names, right? Ramaswamy, I love that last name. He was a CEO of a couple of different companies, um, a Harvard grad, the whole thing. And he says at the beginning of this book, I can't take it anymore. I just have to sort of take the lid off of this world and just explain to everybody what's actually going on out there. So it's a fascinating book. So when he's describing what stakeholder capitalism is, and he says that there are some CEOs that are genuine, they really want to do good, but most aren't. They're using this as a Trojan horse to uh, further their own uh, interests or just simply make a, an obscene amount of profit on the backs of other people. So he said, stakeholder capital, capitalism, quote, could mean that corporations should affirmatively take steps toward addressing important societal issues like climate change, racism, and workers' rights. That's the bandwagon that most companies are jumping on these days. 
couple of pages later, he says, under the guise of doing good, the corporate con artists hide all the bad things that they do every day. And he proceeds over a couple of pages to list some of the most egregious and some of the most obvious. The kinds of things that um, Nike tells you that they do or they want you to think that they do, and then they're using slave labor in China to make their clothes, right? And they're not the only one, but company after company after company use this front as this candy-coated shell, and they're you know, distracting people from what they're actually doing every single day, right? So this, this book is full of that kind of stuff, and this is the kind of world that's going on in these large businesses. And inside of that gigantic business world, you've got this, this blind spot to the Taliban, this blind spot to Islam, this blind spot to actual evil, the internment of Uyghurs. You've, actually, you've got these actual blind spots to actual evils. You say, was well, just actually the nature of the beast. They want you to think they're doing good while they just engage with or partner with evil all day long. One of my favorite economists is a guy by the name of Wilhelm Röpke. Uh, he fled from the Nazis, um, and he became responsible for, he and one other economist were responsible for rebuilding Western Germany after World War II. So if you think of the differences between West Germany and East Germany after World War II, He's responsible for that difference and for what happened in West Germany. And he, is, um, uh, he, was, uh, he was a believing Lutheran, a, a pietistic Lutheran. So he wasn't a Lutheran in name only, um, but he was very serious about his faith. And he wrote a book called A Humane Economy um, that I just, I just absolutely love this book. But this is inside of his introduction. So when we think of we got this economic structure that's doing all of this harm, we've got this economic structure that has built its own moral code and system that it wants to force upon its employees and, and, and enforce through political means and banking means and blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. A guy like Wilhelm Röpke, as a Christian, says, here's how I view how an economy should work. And it's all based on the individual value of the person created in the image of God. I absolutely love this stuff. It's so fascinating. So he says this, my picture of man is fashioned by the spiritual heritage of classical and Christian tradition. I see in man the likeness of God. I am profoundly convinced that it is an appalling sin to reduce man to a means, to just get something done that we want done. It is an appalling sin to reduce man to a means, even in the name of high-sounding phrases, and that each man's soul is something unique, irreplaceable, priceless, in comparison with which all other things are as not. So I love this kind of thinking. But here's my theology. Here's what Scripture teaches me about every single one of you. And I'm going to use that as a basis to say, here's now how we build a nation. Here's how we build an economy. Here's a Christian thinking about what he believes and actually applying it to the world and doing actual good with it. The quote goes on to say, I'm attached to a humanism. And in this context, that means the value and the possibility of humans. I am attached to a humanism which is rooted in these convictions and which regards man as the child and image of God, but not as God himself. 
to be idolized as he is by the hubris of a false and atheist humanism. These, I believe, are the reasons why I so greatly distrust all forms of collectivism. And he lives and writes and does his work while communism is on the rise, while statism, even in the West, is on the rise, and he just doesn't like it at all. He said, because it reduces you to a meaningless cog. And I don't think any of you are meaningless. I also don't think any of you are God. So nobody, even if they are the CEO of Yum Brands, <laughs> can be put in the place of God like that. So we're going to do things differently. So you see, there is a different way of seeing things biblically while we watch even business and economics move in this really strange direction right now. So why is it, again, why gigantic corporations are okay with actually a lot of brazen evils in the world or won't stand up or won't simply leave China or boycott China until they do X, Y, and Z or boycott this group of people because they're doing business with the Taliban, whatever the case may be, why won't they do that? Well, we listed those three that were given a little bit earlier on, but quite frankly, there is another reason. And that is that spiritually, they're all on the same team. It's and what we see in the world is it's either worship of God, the one true God, or the worship of anything and everything else. Just whatever it is, we throw it all in a pile. In the end, we're all going to be okay with each other because we're not God. So there's a spiritual reason, I think, for a bunch of stuff like this. Good. We've got a few minutes. Turn to the book of Ezekiel. We went through Ezekiel chapter 9 very quickly last time. But, I, but I, as I was thinking about this, how is it that you've got all of this ideological syncretism over here, and then you've got this one true God over here, but all these people are perfectly happy with each other? Well, Ezekiel chapter 8 gives us, I think, this wonderful little glimpse into how the, this, this happens and that it happens so easily, um, even amongst God's people, but inside of the human heart as well. So Ezekiel 8, 9, and 10 are a unit inside of this book. And it's the story of the glory of God leaving the temple. The cherubim and the holy of holies is supposed to be where the glory of God sits. Ezekiel's book opens up with his vision of the throne room of God, and he's not in Jerusalem. He's not in the temple. He's with his people in exile. Why did that happen? Ezekiel 8, 9, and 10 tell us why and tell us how. So Ezekiel chapter 8. Good. We're going to be able to get through at least some of this. Ezekiel chapter 8. Let's read through the first four verses. The first phrase in Ezekiel chapter 8 is a kind of marker We've got a new date in, in this chapter, which you know is one of the things that tells the reader, all right, we're kind of in a different section. We're in a new uh, topic. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness. Again, the language is just incredible. He's doing everything he can to explain what it was like what he saw. <clears throat> like gleaming metal, 
he put out the form of a hand or something that was probably like a hand and took me by a lock of my head. All right, so strange things happened to Ezekiel. He grabbed me by the hair and the spirit, the ruach, lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway to the inner court that faces north, where there was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley, or in Ezekiel chapter 1. So this is about 14 months after his vision in Ezekiel chapter 1. He says, I'm sitting and I have the elders of Judah around me. That image happens a couple times in the book and the sense is probably something like the elders of Judah have realized that God is doing interesting things with Ezekiel. So they're with him to see if they can receive a word from the Lord through Ezekiel about what's happening. And so we've got this sort of spiritual convocation that is gathered around Ezekiel. Then Ezekiel sees this, this, this divine being, the lower half below what looked like to be a waste is just on fire. And the top half is just bright and glowing and reaches out and grabs him by the hair and takes him in the spirit. So the spirit of God takes him spiritually, so to speak, to Jerusalem and drops him in the middle of the temple and begins to walk him through the temple. So he sees what he says when Ezekiel gets to the temple. There's a gate in the north end. Remember, the temple faces east. The main gate faces that direction, but he walks through the gate in the north, and he sees what the ESV calls the seat of the image of jealousy. So the, the word for the seat or the phrase for the seat also means statue, and it's a word that's used to forbid idols in worship. That word is also used in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 16 through 18. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. Don't make any images. Well, the Spirit of God puts Ezekiel in the temple court, and the first thing that he sees is an image. He sees a statue. He sees the seat of the thing that provokes the jealousy of God. They've begun to erect idols to other gods inside of my temple. That's what God wants Ezekiel to see. And in fact, it's going to be the thing that provokes God to anger and jealousy and brings about the events of Ezekiel chapter 9. We read those last time, and again, it was just absolutely brutal. So it is going to become an explanation. Chapter 8 will be an explanation as to why the glory of God leaves the temple of God. Verses 5 and 6. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary, but you will see still greater abominations. What they are doing is driving God out of the temple. Okay? That's how significant this is. He wants Ezekiel to see it, and he wants, to see, wants Ezekiel to see exactly what they are doing. So verse 7. And he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. 
So some of you may remember when we went through the building of Solomon's temple, we actually talked a little bit about how that temple was built and constructed. And outside of the holy place in the Holy of Holies, you have these exterior uh, rooms. It's a little bit like we've got the sanctuary here in the middle, and then we have the wings over here, an office wing and a nursery wing. So you had something very similar in the temple. So what Ezekiel sees is a hole in the wall in one of these outer rooms. So he's not yet walking into the court of the temple itself, but into one of these outer rooms where there's darkness. Okay, instead, instead of the light and the gold that is inside of the holy place, he's walking into a place of darkness. And, and this is how it happens. And behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, son of man, dig in the wall. Make it larger so you can go through it. So I dug in the wall and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, go in, see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel with Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? So they've drawn images of every idol that they can think of, every pagan deity that they can think of, and they are worshiping and they're burning incense in God's temple to these pagan deities. For they say the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He said also to me, you will see still greater abominations that they commit. So he sees all this idolatrous representation and he sees a man he recognizes. What's interesting about him is that he's the son of Shaphan. So if you're into this kind of Bible study, hunt down Shaphan and the sons of Shaphan. It's a fascinating family, and they play a role in the exile of Judah and Jeremiah's life and now Ezekiel's life as well. But Shaphan, he is the scribe to King Josiah who finds the law buried inside of the temple. And he finds it, he dusts it off, they realize what it is, and Shaphan, who's a faithful man, brings it to Josiah, and that's what actually initiates the reforms of King Josiah. But he's got a bad son, and he's got a couple of good sons. And Ezekiel sees the bad seed, and Jeremiah is actually helped greatly by two of his other sons as well. It's a fascinating sort of story that's sort of woven through this part of the Old Testament history. But all kinds of pagan gods have been drawn on the walls outside of the temple, and it's all being done in dark, right? All of it is in dark. Verse 14. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate to the house of the Lord, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will see greater abominations than these. So it, it just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. So these women are weeping to Tammuz. Now this is a little bit of a fuzzy reference. It's hard to nail this one down. But it's likely an old Sumerian god who got picked up by the Canaanites. So it's another Canaanite god that they are lamenting to. They think God has left them and forsaken them. What's ironic in this story is that the only god who has not forsaken them is the one they think has forsaken them. The gods they think that can save them can only forsake them. Does that make sense? 
The ones that they want to save them are the gods who have no power to do anything whatsoever. All right, verse 16. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. So he's still outside, but he finds himself between the patio, the front doors of the holy place, and the gigantic altar that's outside. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will act in wrath my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. This is it. This is it. It's not just this is why exile will happen. This is why these people will be wiped away. And this is why I'm going to leave the temple, the place that was built for my presence and for my people. This is why I am going to leave. So he finds another group of men, and these uh, inside of the temple, these are elders, these are priestly individuals, these are Levite types. And he says, do you see what they're doing? And it's this double imagery. They have their backs to the Holy of Holies. Where they should be actually walking into and ministering at, they have their backs to it, and they've bent over and they're bowing down toward the direction of the rising sun. And they're worshiping the sun. So sun worship is specifically forbidden inside of the Old Testament. So, of course, King Manasseh institutes sun worship um, inside, of, inside of Judah. And we see sun worship in Judah during Josiah's reforms. And part of Josiah's reforms occur here in 2 Kings 23, verse 11. And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the chamberlain, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. So even though Josiah does that after the first wave of exile and Ezekiel and Daniel and people like that disappear, they've actually reinstituted worship of the sun inside of the temple of the Lord. And then you get this great phrase. It's a great little phrase. <clears throat> Behold, they put their branch to their nose. Does anybody else have a different translation that says something completely different from that? They put their branch to their nose. They put a twig in their nose. So one of the guesses, this is a strange phrase. One of the guesses about what this phrase is trying to say is God is saying it's like they've taken a branch and they've stuck it up my nose. So the imagery seems to be one of two things. Earlier on in the same chapter, remember they were burning incense to all these other gods. And there are passages early in the Old Testament when God speaks of worship is this pleasant aroma in his nostrils. They're burning false fire. They're burning false incense. So what he's smelling is rancid. The other option is that they're making obscene gestures in his direction. That's the other option when they've raised the branch to their nose, right? So this is abomination central. All of it is happening in the temple of the Lord. And 
You put all of those pagan gods together. It doesn't matter what nation they came from. It doesn't matter what tribe they came from. You can put them all together. You can worship them all. And they are all perfectly fine being worshiped together by the people of God. But the one true God can't be there. So you can put whatever you want to inside of that temple. You have immediately desecrated the temple. And God says, I'm going. And in chapter 9, when he tells the guys to slaughter, and judgment begins where in chapter 9? in the house of the Lord. He says, shed blood. Shed as much blood as, as needs to be shed and defile the temple because it is no longer where I am. This is what they have done to us. So this is, this is hardcore stuff. It's either the one true God or anything and everything else. So on a certain level, don't let it surprise us if there's this bizarre alliance or at the very least a refusal to even gripe about actual evil from those who do not worship the one true God. Because spiritually, it's all the same team, right? Does that make sense? It's the one true God or it's anything and absolutely everything else. All right, we've uh, hit our seven o'clock mark. So let's just pray real quick, and uh, Brooks and the rest of the crowd will be in here in just a moment. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this time, and Lord, we ask that um, especially the Word of God would um, become significant to us as we process things like this, and we see the kinds of divisions that are occurring in kind of in, in, inside of our world. And Lord, to take stock of what it means for us to worship the one true God, for His presence to be inside of our lives and inside of the places where we gather. May it be precious to us, more precious to us than anything and everything else. God, we ask for that grace and that wisdom, we pray in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen.